Our scripture lesson this evening is from 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 7. We're going to be uh, reflecting on the glorious truth of Jesus Christ, our mediator. We're going to be using as a guide the Westminster Confession of Faith, which we've been studying for some months. Um, if the confession is anything, it is biblical and it is um, uh, orderly. And, and, and we'll see the orderliness of it in, uh, if I could just point us out, point out to us one way. We're moving from a few weeks back teaching on the fall of man into sin to last time the way that God interacts with people, which is by way of covenant and which stressed that Christ was uh, the mediator of the new covenant, the covenant of grace. And, and now we're going to be focusing on Jesus Christ in his capacity as mediator. And then we'll move, continue to move in an orderly fashion. But I uh, want to see how um, Christ is qualified to be and lives out his role as our mediator, which 1 Timothy 2 speaks of. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator, between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Amen. If you'd like to follow along, I'll be reading now from uh, the back of the songbook from which we've just sung, page 924. Page 924, not quite as lengthy a chapter as that on Scripture, uh, but it's a lengthy chapter on uh, what we believe about Christ the Mediator, rightly so. It pleased God in His eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus, His only begotten Son, to be the mediator between God and man, the prophet priest and king, the head and savior of his church, the heir of all things and judge of the world, unto whom he did from all eternity give a people to be his seed and to be by him in time redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, and glorified. The Son of God, the second person in the Trinity, being very and eternal God, of one substance and equal with the Father, did... When the fullness of time was come, take upon him man's nature with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary of her substance, so that two whole, perfect, and distinct natures, the Godhead and the manhood, were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion. Which person is very 
God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. The Lord Jesus in his human nature, thus united to the divine, was sanctified and anointed with the Holy Spirit above measure, having in him all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge in whom it pleased the Father that all fullness should dwell, to the end that being holy, harmless, undefiled, and full of grace and truth, he might be thoroughly furnished to execute the office of a mediator and surety, which office he took not unto himself, but was thereunto called by his Father, who put all power and judgment into his hand and gave him commandment to execute the same. This office the Lord Jesus did most willingly undertake, which that he might discharge. He was made under the law and did perfectly fulfill it endured most grievous torments immediately in his soul and most painful sufferings in his body, was crucified and died, was buried and remained under the power of death, yet saw no corruption. On the third day he arose from the dead with the same body in which he suffered, with which also he ascended into heaven, and there sitteth at the right hand of his Father, making intercession, and shall return to judge men and angels at the end of the world." The Lord Jesus, by his perfect obedience and sacrifice of himself, which he through the eternal spirit once offered up unto God, hath fully satisfied the justice of his Father and purchased not only reconciliation but an everlasting inheritance in the kingdom of heaven for all those whom the Father hath given unto him. Although the work of repentance was not actually wrought by Christ till after his incarnation, Yet the virtue, efficacy, and benefits thereof were communicated unto the elect in all ages successively from the beginning of the world in and by those promises, types, and sacrifices wherein he was revealed and signified to be the seed of the woman which should bruise the serpent's head and the lamb slain from the beginning of the world being yesterday and today the same and forever." Christ, in the work of mediation, acts according to both natures, by each nature doing that which is proper to itself, yet by reason of the unity of the person, that which is proper to one nature is sometimes in Scripture attributed to the person denominated by the other nature. To all those for whom Christ hath purchased redemption, he doth certainly and effectually apply and communicate the same, making intercession for them and revealing unto them in and by the word the mysteries of salvation, effectually persuading them by his Spirit to believe and obey, and governing their hearts by his word and Spirit, overcoming all their enemies by his almighty power and wisdom in such manner and ways as are most consonant to his wonderful and unsearchable dispensation. Amen. I think it's fair to say that what we're contemplating today, this evening, is is heavy theology. And one complaint that we often hear against theology is that it complicates simple matters. Maybe you've heard that objection. Maybe you're feeling that objection at this very moment. 
Do we need doctrine if we believe the Bible and trust Jesus? Why would you complicate things? I've got God's Word. I've got, I, I love God. I trust in Jesus. Do we really need theology? Might we, might we not lose our first love while stockpiling spiritual information? Someone might say as an objection to theology. And the answer is yes, we might. We might lose our first love while stockpiling spiritual information. And we must resist replacing faith with mere knowledge. So yes, there there are surely dangers in any endeavor, even in the endeavor of undertaking serious theological study. One might put their confidence in the theological study and not in Christ. So, sure, we'll, we'll beware as we undertake this serious study. But the objection that theology complicates faith is also naive. In no other endeavor, no other worthy endeavor, does it make sense to reject deep and intimate knowledge in favor of a primitive attachment to the idea, which is what critics of theology are often, often in favor of. Let's just, let's just hold to the idea primitively, simply, and not dive deeply. The reality, of course, is that in all worthy disciplines, um, whether it is athletic or vocational or a, a hobby, be it musical or anything else, um, the, the love of the thing is fed by knowledge. And so what we want to confess together as believers in the, in the Christian tradition, in the Reformed tradition, is that faith in Jesus, yes, must be childlike, but it must not be childish. And, and so much of the the presentation of the faith in Christianity today is simply childish. It's not advancing. It's not solid. It's not wrestling with the hard, uh, with the realities that are hard for us to comprehend sometimes. And and we're, we're commanded to do this, to do hard theological study, even by the Bible itself. We should, as Hebrews 6.1 says, we should press on leaving behind the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Well, this is maturity. This is um, surely not what we might call the elementary, the simplistic teachings of Jesus Christ, but it's, it's, Serious doctrine in answer to Scripture's command. Press on. Dig deeper. Um, Challenge your thinking by the Word of God. And so what what we need to affirm is this. Faith can be as simple as Jesus loves me. But faith should also want to know more of what that statement means. What does it mean that the holy God can love a sinner like me? How is that how is the statement Jesus loves me? How is that possible? And to answer that question, we have to move beyond simplicity. And and and, and not simply say Jesus saves. 
we have to try to explore. What does it mean? How is it possible? How does Christ the mediator love sinners? We have to try to answer that question even when the, the, the knowledge that that question leads us into is intricate. So let's try to do that this evening with God's help. Let me just say up front, hopefully to, to clear away at least the, the, the terminology of mediator. So the, 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 headings, the chapter's heading is of Christ the mediator. And so children, when you hear the word mediator, the first thing you should think is there's a problem between two people. The, the, the work of a mediator implies estrangement. It, it implies disagreement. It implies a problem. And so suppose um, two, uh, two brothers began a business together and things were going well for a time, but eventually they started disagreeing and one wanted to take the business one way and the other the other way and they couldn't, they couldn't work things out together. There was, in fact, the relationship was becoming hostile and, and heated. And so they, they would perhaps call in a mediator, a, a counselor, and try to try to help the the, the, the the warring parties reach a resolution. That, that's the basic idea of a mediator. And so the, the the reality that this word is driving us to is this that in our natural alienation with God, Jesus is the only one who can make us pleasing in God's sight, as Paul says in First Timothy chapter 2. We're not naturally pleasing in God's sight because of our sinfulness. Look back to Genesis 6, right? God saw the works of people, and, and what he saw was atrocious. It wasn't pleasing. God was very displeased at the sin of, God's, uh, of, of the people he had made, and, and the people that he had made didn't care about God. The, the hostility ran both ways. How this can be so, how, how there can be mediation between the two parties at odds, God and ourselves, uh, can be summarized under um, four points. At least that's what we're going to try to do this evening, to summarize the ministry of Christ as mediator under four points, treating them briefly, of course. But uh, let's wa- walk through this chapter, summarizing it. First of all, considering Christ's calling. What was his is his calling as mediator to mean. And, and we can say this in brief. The triune God, so Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, eternally appointed the Son to be the mediator of God's people. So this is, a, this is a triune understanding. This isn't Jesus coming to the rescue of the people, uh, you know, behind God's back or anything like that. This is the triune God eternally decreeing Christ to be the mediator. And, and Scripture uses several models to explain Jesus' calling. What is he called to do? Now, we've, we're using the word mediator to capture, um, in, in one word, the calling of Jesus, but under that word, there are several models. And so Jesus is called as mediator to be our prophet, 
priest and king. Hopefully those are words that you have uh, come across in the Old Testament. There were prophets, right? And priests and kings. And so the Old Testament offices provide categories that Jesus fills up. And so within the category of of uh, prophet, there is um, Elijah and Elisha and and Daniel and others. So there's that category of prophet, but it's filled up in Jesus. It's realized in Jesus. The same is true for priest and king. And, and each of these is so vital to Jesus' calling to mediate for us. Our spiritual ignorance requires a true prophet to faithfully reveal to us a just and loving God. Our sin requires a guiltless priest to offer sacrifices appeasing God's just wrath against us. Our weaknesses and waywardness requires a strong and good king to govern us and to overcome our enemies by his almighty power and wisdom. So there's that, there's that model of prophet, priest, and king. But Jesus is also called, using other models, you might say, to be the head and savior of the church, that gathering of God, of, of people from all time and all places, to be part of his family. The church is God's flock, but it has wandered from the fold and needs a good shepherd who will always act in our best interests. You can't say that about other leaders or other, or other shepherds or guides. Sometimes guides act in their own best interest, but not Jesus. Jesus is called also in the words of Hebrews 1 verse 2 to be the heir of all things. Now, um, pro- probably the idea behind that is, is the heir uh, in uh, in culture at that time and, and still today, at least the executor of the estate is often the, the firstborn. And we recognize that Jesus isn't, uh, is not a creature. He's not born in, in the same way as us. But there's this, this special capacity that Jesus is called into to be the heir of all things, not only receiving all things for his glory, but he's that, that special person for whom all things exist. He's also the judge of the world. And so the rightful king, we believe, will return to reclaim from the usurping devil all that is rightfully his. He's the heir. He's the judge. And he will come again and and take back to himself what Satan has attempted to usurp. So this is, in in summary, the, the calling of Jesus Christ to be our mediator, to make peace between, between God and man. And, and although God's people are united to Christ eternally by election, and so in that sense, we, God's people have never not belonged to God, in time, the Lord Jesus comes to execute the purposes of election. So election, um, that, that special relationship toward, uh, to God of being ch- his chosen people must come to maturity, must be realized. 
uh, through, as Romans 8 says, through redemption and through uh, calling and through justification and sanctification and ultimately glorification. So, in other words, Jesus is the cure uh, for our sin that, that, that alienates us from God, but that cure has to come to us in time to make us friends with God. So Christ is eternally appointed as mediator, called to be our mediator. But to do the work of a mediator, to, to actually reconcile God and man, to do the work that he's called for, Christ had to truly become a man. And so that's the second thing that we want to think about in terms of Christ's um, office of mediator, and that is his incarnation. Christ's incarnation In other words, how Christ would mediate between God and man is the most beautiful of all mysteries, which is truly a word that Scripture teaches us to use to think about the incarnation. Paul puts it that way in 1 Timothy 3, verse 16. The mystery of godliness is great. God manifest in the flesh. What what had to happen for Christ to function in time as our mediator is that he had to come and properly represent the two parties of God and man. And so he comes most mysteriously as God into this world, eternal God becoming human. We believe that Christ is not a creature. We, we, we do see, of course, the Lord Jesus born in time, born of a real mother, born, um, yes, probably cr- crying. He, he did make uh, crying in the stable. He's, he's a, a real person, but, but he, he's not a creature. He doesn't come into existence at the incarnation. The Son of God doesn't come into existence at Christmas time 2,000 years ago. The confession puts it this way, drawing on historic orthodox theological concepts. He is very and eternal God of one substance and equal with the Father. And yet, without giving up his deity, he took on a real human nature, including our infirmities, our weaknesses, excluding our sin. So to be human is to, be, um, is to have certain infirmities, certain limitations, like, for example, being in one place at one time, a body has that limitation. We try, don't we, to be in multiple places at one time, but we can't do it. And so with limitations like that, with limitations like um, needing to eat periodically, we, we, we aren't full of limitless energy. We have... We get tired and, and so on. And so in that way, the Son of God became like us. The Bible says in Luke chapter 1, verses 35, that the way this happened is that the Holy Spirit came upon and overshadowed Mary so that the child she birthed was truly her son and God's Son. We don't need to speculate exactly how that was achieved, but it's true that, that Jesus would look to Mary as his 
real mother and look to God as his real father. God in real human flesh. Jesus' human nature, we say, is, um, is uh, like ours in terms of its infirmities, just being truly human. But his human nature, we also need to confess, is perfect. It is the real humanity w- without the, uh, the weaknesses brought on by sin sanctified and anointed by the Holy Spirit. So he's the perfect human. By, and so by his treasury of wisdom and knowledge of grace and truth poured into him without measure, Jesus is thoroughly furnished to execute the office of a mediator. He's perfectly qualified. He's our perfect representative. If you think about representation in Scripture, you think of, um, you know, who would, who would Israel choose to go up against Goliath? Well, you'd think maybe someone, someone strong and hardened by, uh, the, by warfare and whatnot. And, and, and you say, no, in, in that sense, David was the perfect mediator, the, the right one to go against Goliath. In a much greater sense, Jesus is the perfect one, the, 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 the real thing, the true human to go into the conflict with the devil. The historic church has summarized for us very simply the result of the incarnation. I say simply, meaning um, in a few words, uh, the, the fleshing out of that the simple statement is not, is not easy, but the early church has given us this phrase that Jesus Christ is one person with two natures. One person, truly one person. Not, he's, not, he's not two two people crammed into one body or anything like that. He's, he's truly one person having two natures. In him, the confession reminds us, two whole, perfect, and distinct natures, the Godhead and the manhood, were inseparably joined in one person. How? Well, we don't know exactly, but we know how it wasn't. That is, these two natures didn't come to be joined to the one person by any way of conversion, like changing into something different, or composition, being melded into one, or confusion, being blended and mixed up together. Jesus' two natures didn't blend into one, making Jesus no longer human or divine, but another sort of being altogether. We know that didn't happen. As Jesus mediates for our sin, he acts according to both natures. By each nature, doing that which is proper to itself, the confession says. He acts according to his humanity or according to his divinity in ways that are appropriate to those natures. There's not a, there's not a, there doesn't, isn't a third nature formed by the joining together of the two. In other words, his divinity, and this is very important for us, his divinity wasn't humanized, nor his humanity deified. So we truly have two natures, the the, the natures of the two parties that need to be brought together, actually brought together in the one person of Jesus Christ. 
Now we read the Gospels, we read the records of the life of Jesus, and sometimes we witness more plainly his manhood. How else do you understand John eleven thirty five? Jesus wept. Sometimes we witness more explicitly his Godhead. John says in chapter 2, verse 25 of his Gospel, that he knew what was in a man. Well, I don't know what's in a man. Uh, I have guesses sometimes, and a lot of times those guesses are wrong. But Jesus knew. So we, we witness sometimes more plainly his manhood or his Godhead, but at all times his actions are those of a single, unified person, our Savior. And, and what do we do uh, what do we rather believe about his actions? So if, we, if we're confessing that in the incarnation we have two natures joined into one person so that at all times the actions are that of one single unified person, sometimes expressed more plainly in his manhood or his Godhead, but what is it that he's doing in, in terms of his work as a mediator? Well, that's our third consideration this evening. I want to think about Christ's work So he's called to the office of mediator. He is um, qualified, you might say, for the office of mediator through his incarnation. But what does he do? What is his work? And the Bible says that to mediate for us, to actually do the work of mediation, bringing together two warring parties, Jesus was made under the law, Galatians 4, verse 4. That's an astounding statement. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was was made in the incarnation under the law, subject to the law. That means that as a human, he was bound to keep the law as all humans are. Jesus wasn't exempted from the law. If so, he wouldn't have been a true human. So he's bound to the keep, he's bound to keep the law as all humans are. But unlike the rest of us. And despite tremendous opposition and temptation, Jesus actually kept the law. That's an important important aspect of Jesus' work as mediator. He kept the law. This is what theologians call Jesus' active obedience. He's, He's actively, deliberately, through all that he does, keeping the law of God. But Christ not only obeyed for us, In other words, keeping that condition of perfect obedience to which we're bound by covenant to God, he also suffered for us, his passive obedience. And we don't don't know how to make sense of this in in one way. How is it that the one who actually kept the law suffers the full penalty of the law? Well, because he became sin for us. His whole journey to the cross was suffering in body and soul. The power of death, you might say, worked on him even before he died. But he did also die. Not just any death, but a death of judgment signified by his hanging on a cross, a Roman cross as a vile criminal. In that moment, Jesus' enemies thought they had succeeded. For three days, the body of our Savior was in the tomb. The second Adam was receiving the wages of our 
sin. We know that when ordinary humans die, their bodies decompose. Death wins, at least for a time. But Christ isn't an ordinary human. Hebrews 7.16 says that he possesses the power of an indestructible life. This life can't be destroyed. And so his body does not decay. As God promised, he raised his son from the dead, renewed his body, and received him again to his heavenly throne. And there Jesus, having done the, the work of keeping the law and suffering the penalty that the law prescribed for disobedience, he continues to mediate for us in heaven, interceding for us by the merits of his perfect life and his sacrificial death. So when we think of interceding, we we might think of Jesus praying for us, and that's true, that's exactly right, but he's not praying for us in the same way that you and I pray for each other. Jesus is praying for us through the power of his perfect life and sacrificial death. And on that basis, on those merits, in a certain sense, that's really, that is sort of how we pray for each other, but not on the basis of our obedience or our suffering, but on the basis of Jesus' obedience and suffering. So he's mediating for us right now. His mediation presently is not evident to all. Some, uh, like the scoffers that Peter writes about in, comp- in comparing um, his day and our day with the day of Noah and the flood, uh, say that, you know, Jesus is absent. We, we don't even know if he ever really was, these scoffers say. But the Bible says that, that one day when Christ returns in judgment, everyone will witness his complete redemption of the elect. So right now, his mediation is not seen as a glorious thing in the world. But one day, every every eye will see him, Revelation says. Even those that pierced him will see him and see that's, that's the mediator. That's the Son of God, Son of Man. In the meantime, his mediation has powerful effects on the elect. And that's what, what, what we want to consider finally, fourthly this evening. That is Christ's saving benefits. His saving benefits. Not, not simply what, does, what has Christ done, but how do we benefit from what Christ has done. And to understand this, we, we need to go back to this um, fundamental notion of the holiness of God, the justice of God. As a holy God, His justice both demands obedience to his holy will and inflicts punishment for lawbreakers. God is right to do that and, and just in doing so. And so in, in two ways, Jesus' mediation answers the claims of God's justice that was against us. So <clears throat> the... To go back to that concept of mediation, the reason that there's conflict is not just because people are against God, but because God is against us in our sin. And so, as as we've just considered, first of all, by his perfect obedience, Jesus keeps the law for us. 
as if, the Heidelberg Catechism says, we had kept it entirely ourselves. And second, by the sacrifice of himself, Jesus pays the, the full penalty for our disobedience so that the sentence has been served and can no longer uh, drag us back into God's displeasure. Christ purchases both reconciliation, that is a right relationship with God, and an, an everlasting inheritance in the kingdom of heaven for the elect. And of course, those two go together. If we have a right relationship with God, if we're truly sons and daughters of God, then we must have the inheritance that God has for his children. And so because of Jesus, believers have the forgiveness of sins and the gift of eternal life. And friends, that is true also for those who lived before Jesus' earthly ministry. Sometimes it's suggested that there was a different way of salvation prior to the coming of Jesus Christ than after the coming of Jesus. But Jesus is an eternal mediator. What, what Jesus did then, when the fullness of time had come, Galatians 4.4, 4, what, what he did at that time in his life and through his death was truly efficacious. It truly effected the redemption of God's people. Christ's death and his resurrection truly defeated death and Satan and reopened the way to paradise. But we have to understand that Jesus' earthly ministry, which was efficacious for achieving redemption, that earthly ministry didn't begin God's gracious relationship with his chosen people. How, do we, how could we think about that? In other words, to say that, that God was in a relationship of grace, as we considered last time, even to people who lived and died before the physical coming of Jesus into the world. How can we think about that? Well, maybe like this. Just as a, as a man can love a woman before the marriage ceremony, so God has always loved his elect even before he definitively demonstrated his love at the cross. And so the cross is that definitive demonstration of God's love. But it's always been so that God loves the elect, has always loved the elect. And so the, the elect were in that relationship of, of love with God, though God was extremely displeased uh, with the sins of his people, and, and, and all of that's true even before the coming of Jesus Christ. And so in a similar way, even before Christ's incarnation, believers were led by the Spirit to trust in God's mediator, which the law and the gospel had been revealing since the start, as, as we considered last time. One mediator between God and man always has been that case. That, that has always been the case. As mediator, Christ didn't merely purchase redemption. He also applies his benefits for the salvation of his people. And, and really, that's what much of the rest of the confession is going to be all about. What does this look like? Lived out, experienced in time. Um, and so we'll get to that. But, but, but 
we, we believe that Jesus achieved that salvation and will be applying the benefits of his salvation in time. He intercedes for us. He authoritatively prays for our success. He light, enlightens our minds to the glory of his grace. He persuades us to believe and to obey him. He frustrates our enemies. And so because of all of these things, Scripture's teaching about Christ the mediator should comfort us. No one else can deliver us from our sin. No one else can shepherd us through all of life's dangers. No one else can bring us safely to the new heaven and the new earth. Christ alone is worthy of our trust. We can rest completely in Him, rely on Him to do everything for us that we could not do. And because He is also our Lord, He's worthy of our complete obedience. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, our Savior, and our Comforter, we pray that you would continue to teach us these things. We may not absorb all of these things in one evening or in one lifetime, but we do want to know you, the power of your death and resurrection. And so continue to train us so that we might lean more fully on our mediator, Jesus.